Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. How you guys doing? Thank you. Like y'all, some people actually just like responded. That was great. I, I, you know, I was gonna do like the youth pastor thing and make everybody like switch seats and like get some energy going, but I don't think I have to do that today. So this is this is exciting for me. Um, and in fact, I actually do. I do want to be a little bit of a youth pastor right now, and I'm gonna ask you to participate with me in something. <clears throat> it's going to. It's going to help, hopefully it'll help me prove a point. I don't know if it will, but we'll see. All right. When you've learned something like your entire life, like just like it, you've, you've heard it, it's been a part of like your understanding, like it, it's, it's something that's deeply rooted. I'm going to ask you, like, here it is. Um, when you chew gum and then swallow it, how long does it stay in your body? Seven years, right? That is an absolute fabrication. That is absolutely not true. But why do we all believe that to be true? In fact, if you want, I give you permission to Google that right now, and the first article that'll come up will be the Mayo Clinic, like physicians that have trained for years being asked this question, going, no, it actually goes through your system quite quickly. <laughs> like, but we believe it. I mean, like, literally, I was today years old when I found that out. Like, it was, it, it was crazy to me that I was just like, what are some things that people believe that, we, like, that aren't true? And that was, like, in the top ten. And so I, I was intrigued by that. But there are things like this um, that, that kind of come up in other ways. Um, song lyrics, maybe? Um, for example, I will not sing. I, I guarantee, I, y'all will run away if I do, but there is a song by Tim McGraw that is called Where the Green Grass Grows, and there is a lyric in it that says, raise our kids where the good Lord's blessed, point our rocking chairs towards the west. For 15 years, I thought it said, point our rocket ships towards the west. That's a country song. Like, why, why are rocket ships even in a country song? Like, I, rocking chairs make sense. I mean, rocket ships doesn't even make sense. And so when somebody called me out on that, I was like, of course you're wrong. <laughs> you're an idiot if you think it's rocking chairs. I was the wrong one. Because, um, you know, it makes more sense to have rocking chairs instead of rocket ships. But guys, like, what I've found out is that um, there, there's a buddy of mine um, that, that kind of taught me about this thing uh, that said, like, uh, when somebody bumps your cup, like, when, when somebody knocks into you and um, the way you react is what comes out. So, like, um, when somebody bumps your cup, what comes out? Like, that's going to be a question that I'm going to ask you today. When somebody presses up against something that you've believed to be true for a long time, and you're like, hey, this is the way it is, how do you react? Because I think the deeper the issue goes, like, you know, fact about gum, it's like super shallow. Like, where the green grass grows, maybe a little deeper for me, because I love country music from the 90s, but, like, what if it's something more about your identity or about the God that you worship or 
the way that you've like centered your life around something. I, I remember back in my youth ministry days, um, uh, and guys, I've already gone through counseling for this, so like, don't feel sad. This is, a, this is meant for a story here. But I received an email that said, here are the seven reasons why you're a terrible youth pastor. And I'm like, that was a hard read. Like, I, I, I read through that, and I could just feel it. Like, you, you feel the heat rising as you're reading something like that, as you're like, like and it's just boiling up. And, and I was like, it was anger and frustration, and like, I wanted to attack so I wrote an email, and then I deleted an email, and then I wrote an email again, and then I deleted an email, <laughs> and that went on for a while. Um, and then I talked to somebody about it, and they're like, hey, man, maybe you should just kind of process that. And I'm like, that's a good idea. So I processed it, and I was still angry, but I was angry because five of those seven things that that guy said was right. Like, he was right about, like, I was like, oh, man. Maybe not everything that he was saying was, was right, but, like, there were areas of which I was living and operating in that were not honoring to God. And, and I reacted in anger because it challenged me at a core that I wasn't ready to hear. And so it took a buddy of mine digging into my life and saying, BJ, you want the appearance of godliness, but not godliness itself. And I'm like, oh, man, that, that hit home. And, and so, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys today that in the passage that we read, that I'm going to ask you to evaluate and look into your own life and say, like, hey, are there things that I would declare as good, as right, as, as holy, as honoring, as something. But I'm, I'm putting it out there for the appearance of godliness more than I am for God himself. And so it's the, it's the difference between being someone that's completely devoted and, and pouring everything into who Jesus is and somebody that's partially devoted. Because I think what we're going to find today is that is that God has a plan. God, God has a design, a desire for us, and it is perfect, and it is good. And then we have our own plans that are, that are over here that, that, that look different than what God's plans are. And sometimes we go like, you know what? God, I, I want to do what you're, you're like over here, but I'm going to grab what, what you're like, and then I'll just put it on top of mine over here. And I'll just, and it looks similar to this because, it, you know, I don't know if I'm making statues whenever I'm saying that, but like I'm going to take that part of the statue and put it over here. And I'm going to say, like, this is good enough. And that's what we're going to be challenged in today. And so we're going we're gonna to look and ask you to, to evaluate deep things. And, and deep things we're pretty unaware of. It's, it's become so normative in our life that, that we don't even recognize when the deep things are being affected. Like, I didn't recognize th that somebody was challenging me on, on my perception and, and how I was being viewed until it, like, bumped my cup and, and what spilled out was anger. And so I'm going to ask you to see what, what would be some of those things in your life. 
Well, you can look at your, your time, where you spend your money. You could look at uh, what you do in your free time when nobody's around, what you're looking up and researching on your phone whenever you're waiting for somebody and you just find yourself having nothing else to do. Or maybe it's like what you worry about. What keeps you up at night? What, what makes it difficult for you to sleep? What, what brings anxiety in your life? Or what if whatever this thing might be in your life, and this perception, this idea, this, this relationship, that if, if God were to remove that from your life, that you would say, hey, I, I don't even know if this thing is worth living. Like, and, and it's going to draw out some of that. And at the end of the day, it's going to ask the question, what are you living your life for? Because we see this guy named Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 6 and 7. And we see that, that Stephen is a guy that has a life that he's, he's going to live completely for Jesus. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to bump into some visceral emotions of other people. So Stephen, as, as, he's, as he's moving in to, to what God's called him to do, he's going to interact with these folks and it's gonna, you're going to see that they're going to react with anger and frustration and they're going to attack but I have a lot to cover. We're, we're actually going to go through 78 verses today. I'm not going to read all of those. That's what you got to do on your own time. Like, you guys are going to do that on your own time. I'm going to give some overview of stuff. I'm going to give a big overview. And then I'm going to just kind of highlight some, some different parts. So I'm going to just start right now with, with chapters uh, six and seven, just kind of give a big overview. And, and it's about this guy named Stephen. He's a, he's a remarkable guy. He's, he's the first martyr in the church. And martyr is just another name for witness. He was testifying what he'd seen and heard about Jesus. This Stephen was a guy that was a disciple. He was, he was learning from the apostles. He was being trained. He was one of the first guys that raised his hand and said, hey, I'll volunteer to serve whenever the deacons uh, were, were being appointed to, to, to feed the widows that, that didn't have any food. He was, uh, he was going around to local synagogues and sharing the gospel with, with, with people that were of the Jewish faith. And then whenever they saw him doing that, they, they saw him doing it with such, such power and, and, and effectiveness that they, the Jewish leadership actually seized him and brought him and put him on trial before the high priest and the Jewish council to the point where they, they threw him out of the city and stoned him to death. And so... That's, that's the gist of what I'm going to be talking about today. I, I, hope, I hope that points in a direction where Stephen lived a life that, that was honoring to God. But I want to nail down a little bit more specifically. Because this concept of Stephen dying for Christ, being a martyr for Christ, like I believe it's really hard for us in the context that we live in to even know what that's like. We, very few of us have lived in a context where we, we fear for our life on a constant basis. Much less so that if we were to proclaim something to be true with our words, that we, we would die for that. That's just not a part of our, of our lived experience right now. Like, for proclaiming Christ, we do not have a risk systemically of death. Like, we, God has given us that graciousness right now. And so I'm not going to be like, hey, guys, be like Stephen, go and die. That, 
that's not gonna be the application point here. Just, I, want, I wanted everybody to just take a deep breath, okay? Now, I'm gonna go on the other side. Cause see, it's hard for me to even grasp the faithfulness of Stephen in this moment. I mean, he was, he was forgiving the people. He was asking God to forgive the people that were throwing rocks at him until he died. I, I have a hard time understanding that, but what I am gonna do is I'm gonna ask you guys to put yourself on the other side. Put yourself in the position of the person that's hearing the, the words of the testimony of Stephen, and let's see if, if something bumps our cup. Let's see if, if something comes out in our emotions and something comes out in our response or like, hey, would, would I agree with that? Would I disagree with that? And let's see what God might do. And so we're going to dive into the text, and I'm just going to kind of give an overview of the, the first few verses right now in chapter 6. Uh, and we're going to go verse 7 through 14, and I'm going to just, I'm going to read verse 7 first, 7 and 8. It says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples mul multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I want you to hear that last part. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great and wonders uh, and uh, great and wonders and signs among the people. And, and then it goes on and talks about how he was, he was proclaiming the good news to these different synagogues in that particular area. And, and those people were getting frustrated and, and they were accusing him of, of speaking blasphemy of, of God and of Moses. And so they, they instigated some people and they, 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 they seized him when he was in the middle of doing one of these things and they dragged him over to the high priest and the Jewish council and they, and they accused him. They were like, this man won't stop saying things about this holy place, this building, this temple right here, and he won't stop and he's trying to change the customs of Moses. And so those are the things that he was accused of speaking ill of the temple and changing the customs of Moses. And it's summarized in this, for we have heard him say, and this is in verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. You see, Stephen, in his boldness, is proclaiming Jesus throughout this, this land. And we see him doing that with the power of the Holy Spirit in great wisdom and in great grace. And you see, whenever, whenever it starts to become effective and we start to see not just the Jewish people, but people that are a part of the religious leadership, the priests that are offering sacrifices, like on behalf of, of the Jewish people, when we start seeing them say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we have hoped for, when, when the Jewish leaders see that, they go, we can't let this guy keep doing this. And so they seize him and they bring him and put him on trial. And so the two things that he talks about is the temple, right? The, like, they're accusing him of speaking against the temple, that Jesus said he would tear down the temple and that he would change the customs of, of Moses given to them. And, and at the end of the day, what they're, what they're arguing with is he's speaking bad about the, the presence of God. Because the Jewish leaders here were starting to equate that building with the presence of God. And that they were starting to, to, to equate the laws, like God's obedience to God, to the customs of Moses. 
And so whenever he comes to the, to the temple and, and, and the high priest is there and the Jewish council is there, they ask him the question. They were like, are these things so? And, and Stephen knew the weightiness of this situation. He knew that the charge of blasphemy carried with it the, the penalty of death. Uh, but he's going to still engage. He's going to still move forward. And, and, and I know if I were to put myself in that place, that, that there would be a, a desire to want to like defend myself. Like, hey, I, I actually wasn't saying some of those things that, that, that you're accusing me of. Or, or I'd want to justify it. I'm like, hey, like, I actually have the right to say this right here. Like, but he didn't do those two things. He, he, actually, he actually goes like, hey, what do I know to be true about God and about Jesus? And, and he witnessed to them through all of chapter 7. And so as we look at chapter 7, we're going to see the story of Israel. And we're going to see a few things. We're going we're to highlight four things that, that, that Stephen is going to point out to them in their story that's going to bump the cup that they have and challenge them on, on what they've been building. And he's going to use that same analogy of like, hey, here's who God is. Here's, here's his plan and his purpose and his desire for you. And, and here's what your plan and, and the plan of our forefathers has been. And, and I'm going to show you how those are different. And so he's going to, he's going to want to point that out. But he, he uses this, this unique connection right at the beginning. He, and he calls them brothers and fathers. He calls them brothers and fathers. And then in the next chapter, there are 17 different mentions of the, of the term fathers throughout that. And it's talking about their forefathers. And Stephen is doing this right now. He's, he's bridging the gap from the people that have come before to the people of Israel right now. And so he, he's... He's wanting to highlight and, and show that over each of these four instances that we're going to look at, look at, that even in the midst of the brokenness that is seen and the, and the rejection and the inadequacy of God's people, God is still faithful and provides. And so he begins with the story of Abraham. And, and so we're going to look at Abraham, uh, at Abraham in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, and it says this. It says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. Now, like, let, let me paint a picture for us real quick. All right, so God asked Abraham to do three things. One, to go out from the land that you're living in. So, like, get up and go. And he said, don't, or said, leave your kindred. And what, what that word kindred means is, like, your father, your grandparents, the people that are, that are above you. Like, leave your family and those people that are there and go to a place that I'm going to tell you. And then the last one is, go to the place where I'm going to show you. And so um, the place that he was going to show him was the land of Canaan. Now, let me, let me draw it on a map for you real quick. So, like, here's where he was, and there's a big desert right here, and then here's the land of Canaan right here. And, and so Abraham got up and left. Check. He, he, he obeyed God right there. He got up and he left. But when he left, he took his father with him. And God said, hey, 
leave your kindred and, and, and go to the place where I'll show you. So he's like, well, I, I want to take my dad, so I'm going to take my dad. And so he got up and he left and he went to Haran. Now, this is where, this is where Abraham was. This is where he was going. Haran is like up here. And, and so he went up here and he's like, you know what? Halfway is good enough. Right? So what we see here is we see that, that the father, Father Abraham, Father Abraham only partially obeyed God. Like, he's batting 300 right now. Like, I mean, in baseball, that's great. In obedience, it's terrible, right? If my kids obey me, like, 30%, we're having lots of conversations. Like, you see, Abraham only partially obeyed God. You see, Abraham was willing to obey God, but only as long as he was able to hold on to the things that he wanted and only as long as it lived up to the expectations that he had. And so I want to I wanna see, just like Abraham, I'm going to put myself in the position of a person that's, that's being challenged, be like, have, do I only partially obey God? Do I only do what I want to do based off of God's commands? I only have to go as far as to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I, I only have to go as far as to consider others more important than yourself before I realize I am only partially obeying God. I, I, I desire to want to have more, but, but what I'm doing doesn't live up. And so what I do is I, I see what God's plan is over here, and I see my life, and I take a piece of God's plan, and just a part of it, and I, and I put it on top of me over here. And it, and it looks kind of like, like God, but, but it's more me than that. And so we, like the Jewish leaders here, are being challenged in do we only partially obey God? But see, God was gracious, and he wasn't done with Abraham, and, and he continued to fulfill and, and provide for Abraham. He continued to fulfill his promise and provide for Abraham even in the midst of this failure. And he goes on, and Stephen talks about the patriarchs, and, and, and the patriarchs are seen in verses seven, or chapter seven, verses eight and ten. It says, "So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over all of Egypt and over all his household." You see, if we, if we look back in Genesis and we see the, the, the expanded story of Joseph, what we, what we see there is that Joseph was the youngest brother of this family. And, and Joseph had this dream. God gave him this dream, this vision. And this vision was that, that he was standing above his brothers and his brothers were, were bowing down before him. And, and, and his brothers were submitting to him and serving him. As the oldest in my family, that doesn't jive well with me. Um, 
But it also didn't jive well with these patriarchs because it, there was nothing else in tradition, nothing else in the history that they had seen, nothing from their fathers that said that that, that, would, that was the way that God was supposed to work. In fact, God sh- should do what we've always known. God should work through the eldest. And so they were willing to submit to God as long as it, it kept in line with what they expected and what they knew. See, the patriarchs weren't having patriots, patriarchs, not patriots. It's a difference. All right, need to get that right. See, the patriarchs were willing to submit to God as the children of the promise from their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but only if it fit their expectations. And this didn't, and when it didn't fit their expectations, they took matters into their own hands and they grabbed Joseph and they, they, they sold him into slavery to Egypt. And so, guys, I'm gonna ask a question. This is another opportunity we have to like reflect on our own heart. What areas are we unwilling to submit to God in because it doesn't fit with our expectations? Are there places where, where we're like, that's not, how, that's not how we've done it. So that's not, we're not gonna do it that way. I'm, I God wouldn't do it that way. Or we can ask the question, when somebody asks the question, mentions the word submit, how do you even feel about that? Has God put an authority in your life that you don't agree with? And how do you wrestle with that? What new ways do not fit with your own expectations? Where might you see evidence of God at work, but you're quick to criticize the way that they're doing it? You see, when we start to take those ideas and we start to see that and and we take, you know what? God, because my expectations are over here, I'll I'll take what looks good about your plan and I'll take that off and I'm gonna build my own thing right here. I'm gonna keep adding on to take a part of you and put it over here with my plan. You see, the fathers only partially submitted to God. But God, in his graciousness, was not done with the patriarchs. God used Joseph to bring salvation to them and to God's future people. And the people of God were saved in Egypt because of Joseph. But, accordance, but in accordance to God's plan, uh, God's people were, grew so numerous there that, that the, the king of Egypt got, got worried and he actually enslaved them and, and, and he was brutal and oppressive to them. But God was still providing a way. And so... Next, Stephen spends a, a good amount of time focusing on Moses. He, he actually spends 18 verses talking about Moses, and it's summarized in this. It says, God used Moses to rescue the people from slavery in the land of Egypt, and Moses led them out while performing many signs and wonders so that all the people knew and saw that, that the God of Israel was more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And on the other side of freedom, Having seen God do all these things, Moses led them to a place and, and stood in the shadow of Mount Sinai, and, and he, was, he went up on the mountain to inquire of God, God, what do you want of your people? And in this time, this is where uh, Stephen picks up, and he says, and this is in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. 
saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, uh, what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. See, their fathers, having been rescued and led out and provided for, being free to worship God and, and, and having traveled a great distance, came to the place where they would hear from God. And Moses went up on the mountain, and so they would have to wait to hear from God. And so they waited for like a minute, for like one minute. And when it didn't fit what they wanted, when they wanted, and it didn't provide for them in the way that they wanted it, they decided they couldn't wait any longer. And so they began to make a God of their own hands. You see, their fathers were willing to wait uh, and follow God, but only as it fit their timetable and only when God placed what they needed directly in their hands. And when it didn't happen, they took something that, that was like God and they made it themselves. And so the challenge here is, how good are you at waiting on God? And this is the one that hits hard for me. God, I've been praying and asking about this thing and asking you to do this thing in my life for like five minutes. Why won't you answer me? I mean, there are multiple, multiple instances in the scripture where it's like, and they cried out to God for seven years. Like, God, where are you? I don't know one person that would wait seven years crying out to God, like myself included. Guys, that I believe that this is one of those areas where, where we are terrible at. Hey, God, you haven't provided this thing that I want that's a good thing. You know what? I got this, God. I don't, I'm not waiting on you anymore. I'm going to do it myself. I'll handle this. And so as long as God fits in our timetable, we'll do it God's way. But as soon as, as, soon as it moves past that, we, we take that part off and we're just like, nope, this is what I'm going to worship. This is what I'm going to do over here. So we, like the fathers of the Jewish leadership, we only partially wait for God. But even in our impatience and the impatience of these people and their idolatry, God is gracious and he, and according to his promise, he continues to deliver the people of God for his purposes. And it's at this point in, in Stephen's sermon and, and he's talking to, the, to the, the high priest and he's talking to the Jewish council and, and they're hearing this and they're hearing like, hey, you're only partially obedient. You're only partially submitted. You're only partially patient with God. And it's building to something, and you can see the demeanor starting to change because it's, it's leading to this thing. It's leading to something, and there's this tension around the words, work of their hands. And here they are in the shadow of Mount Sinai, and, and, and they're being reminded that the people of God created a God with their own hands. The, the golden calf was created, 
And then he goes on in verses 42 and 43, and he tells a little bit more about that, but that leads directly into the next point that he's going to make. And he's going to talk about the story of the temple and how the temple came to be. And, and, and in verses 44 through 47, I'm just going to summarize it. Um, Moses heard from God and in the wilderness and said, hey, I'm going to create a place for me to meet with my people. This is God saying it to Moses, and this is what it's going to look like. And so, like, you, you make this place for me, and I'll come and meet with my people. And so what they did was they started building this place with their own hands, and, and they would set it up, and God would meet with them, and then they would tear it down, and they would move into another place, and then they would set it up, and then meet with people, and they would tear it down and move to another place. And this went on and on, and it went all the way to the point where they, they, they were about to enter into the promised land, and then they moved into the promised land and, and, and conquered the peoples that were there, and then they moved to Jerusalem and, and, and established it there. And then David said, hey, God, I want to build for you a, a, a place where your presence can be here in this city, in, in the land that you've promised for us. But it wasn't until his son Solomon, and then Solomon built the temple. And that's the, this is the location where that temple was. And here they are, highlighting the importance of this temple to these people. And it's starting to hit home. They've seen that God's moved from, from engaging with Abraham to working through Joseph in Egypt to meeting with the people on Mount Sinai, to meeting with people on, in the tent of meeting in the wilderness and in Israel and in Jerusalem at this point. And it's, it's becoming apparent that it's building to the point where he's going, has the location become more important than the person? Slowly and over time have God's people begin to define this place is more important than who God is. And it's at this point that Stephen turns to the crowd and saying, hey, you were willing to worship God as long as he fits within your understanding of this building, this location, and with your understanding of the customs of Moses. So here's my challenge for us. What areas do I limit God in my life? Where have I pushed God to and say, God, you will have this much and no more. God, you have my Sunday mornings all out for sure. After that, it's mine. God, you have 10 minutes in the mornings. That's it. Or have we let God into every aspect of our life? Have we let God in? to our schools and say, God, you are the God of, that's worthy of worship when I go to school. You are the God that's worthy of worship when I, when I play sports. You are the God that's worthy of worship at work. You are the God that's worthy of worship in my entertainment, what I bring into my head. God, you are worthy of all those things. Or have we said, God, no, you can have this part and no more. So Stephen was setting up something big here and he's, he's saying, he says, if if God is limited to only this space, the temple right here, speaking to these people, he says, then you're only partially worshiping God. And this, this is like where the, the big reversal happens, right? Like, 
like, I don't know if you know wrestling, but like wrestling, a reversal is like when they're like, like close to pinning you, they're close, they're, they're, they're on your back, and then you, you do a move and like all of a sudden you're in control at that point. That was for you, just so you know. This is my wrestling friend right there. Um, I, I wrestled one year, but I don't want y'all to have to think about that. That was gross. So, um, um, but guys, this is when Stephen does this incredible reversal. So Stephen here is being accused of blasphemy against God and against Moses, right? God is the presence of God and Moses, the, the law and the traditions. And he's about to do it. And he says it when he does this. In verse 48, he says, and, and the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. And when he says this, when he says made by hands, everybody in the room understood what that meant. Everybody understood that, that they knew all the other peoples in the world because they were different. They, they were monotheistic. All the other peoples in the world had idols that were made with what? Hands. And so when he was saying, God, uh, the Most High, does not dwell in houses made by hands, he is telling the people, you have created an idol of this place. You have created an idol of this place. You, you took what God's plan was and you, you created your own thing over here. And you said, this is my God. Though it has the appearance of God, it has the appearance of godliness, it is completely self-serving. In other words, Stephen was saying, you are like your fathers. You only partially obey. You only partially submit to God. You only partially wait. You only partially worship because you are not worshiping God at all. You are worshiping a God that you built with your own hands. He is accusing them of the exact same thing that they were accusing him of. See, our hearts are made to fully worship something. And, 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 it, and we can't partially worship God because we have to fill in that gap. That's a vacuum that has to be filled in. And so we, we, we shove whatever else in there, like my own desires, the, the things that I want, I put in that place. And when we do that, when we put that thing in the place, what we are saying is like, hey, God, I'm in the driver's seat. I'm the one that stands in authority. You sit in the back seat. I'm in charge. And when we do that, we are declaring to, to God, hey, I, I am God and you are not. He, he continues to highlight this idea of, of the value that they placed on the temple itself by looking at verse 49 and 50, which is quoting um, Isaiah. It says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You see, God doesn't need anything in order to be worshiped. He is worthy of worship always, in any place, in any time, completely and wholeheartedly. And at this point, the crowd is understanding. Like, they've just been called idol worshipers. They've, they've just been called the worst thing that they can imagine. 
and they are outraged. Their cup has been officially bumped. And what came was murder. Murder came out of that. Because when he was saying that, that just like their fathers, they have rejected God, they have rejected Moses, the, flip was, or the script was officially flipped. And that cut them to the core, and so they were frantic. And so they, they had to operate in the only way that they knew how. And, and what was the last thing that they did when somebody challenged them like this? They dragged them to the Roman courts, and they made up lies, and they nailed them to a cross. They were going to cut out the middleman on this one. So knowingly and unintentionally, they had been taking the parts of God and parts of themselves and merging them together to create their own version of God. It might not have been a golden calf, but it was something that they were worshiping that wasn't God. See, this is a scary thought for me too. Whether knowingly or unintentionally, slowly and over time, how might we have distorted the true God the God of the scriptures, to fit our own needs, to fit our own understanding. There's only one hope that we have, and that's the, that the story's not over. So, like, Stephen's just been telling the history of, of, of Israel, and, and people are already furious, and he hasn't even mentioned Jesus at this point, mind you. Had, hadn't even brought up Jesus. And so he's speaking with greater urgency. What I believe is because he sees the attack coming at this point. And he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And here it is. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And here it is, the last straw that needed to break, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This was Stephen's Hail Mary. This was his last shot. Like, hey, like, please. This was his hope. That, like, hey, I appeal to you. Like, in your... Don't be stubborn. I've seen people like you, the priests from the synagogues, I've seen people realize that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. And he's inviting them. He's, he's, he, it's his last call. Like, would you see that he is the righteous one? And yet the crowd is resolved. Their hearts were set. And they were going to death. So now when they heard these things, and this is in verse 54, they were enraged and, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. You see, Stephen died a gruesome death trying to tell a story about how their God is working in new and powerful ways. And when they were challenged on that, 
they were invited to either investigate deeply or react with what spilled out. So Stephen, being the, the evangelizer, he wanted them to see the same thing that he was seeing right before he died. They wanted to see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was hoping that they would do the same thing that the priests had done before. But then he finished out with this, what I can't imagine doing. With his final breath, he's, he's asking God to, to not hold that sin against them. To not hold that sin. I, I, do, I don't understand that kind of grace. So where might God be trying to bump you today? Where might God be trying to go like, hey, like, are, are you fully obedient? Are, are you fully submitted to my plan for your life? Are, are you fully able to be patient and wait on me? Are you fully able to worship? And here's, here's the Here's the beautiful thing. We can't. <laughs> like, it's, we, we do not have the ability or strength. Stephen didn't have the ability or strength or fortitude to do that. The, the Jewish people didn't have it. In fact, the whole story of the scripture is that nobody has the ability to earn their own righteousness, to 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 follow the, the only plan that God has for us, but there is one that has done it that invites us to participate in his life. There is one. There is one that is a heart that is completely devoted to God. There is one that was tempted in every way but didn't waver once. There is one who has all authority but submitted to death. There is one who controls all things but waited for just the right time. And there is one that deserves all praise and all adoration but received violence and injustice. See, it's this Jesus that we are invited to, to place our life into. We, we get to participate in his complete faithfulness even in the midst of our failures. And the one thing that Stephen did that, that the Jewish people didn't have is that he had completely placed his faith and his trust in Jesus' uh, obedience, in Jesus' submission, in Jesus' uh, patience, and in Jesus' worship more than his own. And he says, I can see him. His eyes were fixed on him more than they were fixed on what was happening to him in that moment. So Pastor Chad, a few months back, kind of talked about this in a, in a different way. He, he said, like, hey, we are, we are all half-hearted in our worship. He's like, but, but my desire is that as I look to Christ as my, the one that is a complete in all his devotion to Christ, that in, instead of being just a half-hearted worshiper, maybe I can be a 9-16th worshiper of Jesus. And being a math guy, I loved that joke. It wasn't a joke, it was real. Like, so the invitation here is that what step might we take trusting Jesus to be fully devoted to God? And so let's be mindful of the moments when somebody 
reveals the idols in our life. When we see that, when we see that trouble brewing and like, why is that heat rising right now? We start to ask that question. Is this a place where I have created an idol in my life? I'm going to invite you to reflect deeply when you want to react, when you want to just blurt out. I want you to reflect deeply and go, God, where might you want to change something in my life? And then the big one that we can do right now, how do we respond acknowledging our shortcomings and his complete faithfulness? Let us respond to Jesus with, with love and adoration and, and every ounce of our, our voice and every ounce of our energy that we can muster in this time. And even if it is half-hearted, like, let's, let's try to get to 916th. Let's, let's go for it. Let's, let's move more into that area. And as we do that, we're going to ask that God would continue to transform us more into the image of Christ. Let's, let's pray and, and invite the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to us right now. Jesus, you are our Lord and our Savior and the only one that we can depend on. Lord, when we have, have turned aside, when, when we have had the appearance of godliness but been self-serving, Lord, I pray that you would break that in us. Lord, if that is just a prayer for me, I confess that right now and I want to follow you. God, but would you make this room a place that that is worshiping out of the grace that we have received because of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would we follow you? Would we proclaim you? Would we be willing to, to step into difficult conversations for your glory, for your name to be proclaimed, setting all things aside because you were worth every ounce of our lives. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.